You've reached the teaching ministry of Darling Street Church. We hope this podcast will help you connect with God and live a really great life. We're in this series thinking about what growth looks like as a church, and we've looked at a number of characteristics of a growing church, and this morning we're going to think about what it is to be an outwardly focused church. And uh, we're going to start off by asking ourselves a question, and the question is this. Uh, The question is this. Wait a moment. Uh, It's a very profound... You may never have thought it. It may feel a little irrelevant to you, but bear with me. You'll find it's very relevant. The question is, who is our church for? Who is our church? Who is the church? Who are we for? And uh, that's a good question, right? Um, What I'd like you to do is uh, turn to the person next to you, say hi to them if you don't know them, and just have a answer that question, just have a discussion about that question. Who's it for? Is, that, is the question clear, what I'm asking? I think it's fairly clear. It's only five words. Who is our church for? Okay, 10 seconds. All right. Okay, what did you come up with? Let's, uh, let's hear some thoughts of what you came up with. Who's the church for? Any ideas? Yes, it is for everyone, and Mark said for non-members. Churches for everyone and non-members, okay. That was easy. Any any, any advances on that? took you a long time and a lot of talking to come up with that, I must say, yeah. Uh, We disagreed completely, Um, but we're both right, I think, Darren and I. We were talking about it's for everyone and it should be a place where non-believers are able to become believers, but also not change what we represent to make it comfortable for everybody. So it shouldn't... So, like, we were kind of having the Islam-Christian conversation. Like, it shouldn't be a place where a a Muslim person come in and go, great, these are my people, necessarily. Um, The teaching should be Christian and the representation should be Christian, but it should be welcoming to people who don't have that belief yet. Yeah, well put, well put. Okay, any other thoughts on this? Who are we for? Janet? I kind of thought it was for God, for us to bring ourselves to God, to bring the community to God, to connect with God, for everyone to find God in their own way. That's awesome, there we go. So the rest of you were all wrong and not very spiritual. No, that's great. You're both right. We're all right. Everyone's right. And we're going to give participation medals for this discussion. Um, no, that's, it's, not, it, it's at one level a very simple question. But at another level, it's really profound, isn't it? And quite complicated. Uh, not, yeah, like, so who are we really? And you can answer this at many levels. So, yeah, for, at one level, we are absolutely... Um, we are for God. Uh, in the first instance, that is, He is our, 
our primary allegiance. We are here to connect with God. We belong to God. This is His church. We are His people, right? For sure. Then we, we all give the answer. Well, we don't all, but it seemed like there was strong thinking. Yeah, we, we are also um, for everyone. And I love the way, uh, you know, that, that we can be for everyone without diluting the essence of being for God and the particular God that we encounter in Jesus Christ. So we're for everyone who wants to discover God. We're for everyone who wants to belong. Um, and, and that is true theologically, and we all go, yes. But I don't know if you've ever been in organizations and perhaps even churches where what happens is their espoused values, what we say we believe, can sometimes be quite different to how we actually behave. So this can be our belief here, and you know maybe we believe that. Sometimes the biggest challenge is if you look at our behavior, we might actually say church is for us in the first instance, mightn't we? And, and at one level, that's an inevitability, like church is for us. But it's not just for us. It's always for us and for everyone. But it can't be for everyone because there's five million people in Sydney, so they won't all fit in. So then who are we for? Well... Well, well, maybe we're not for everyone, but we're for anyone who wants to come and be part of us, right? And the barrier of entry should be very low, except the barrier of entry is quite high in, in practical sociological terms, like actually walking through these doors, taking a seat here, can feel very hard to do. So, so we, we've got to think about this a whole lot. Um, and, and what I want to think, what, how I want us to start... Um, from this little text is by stepping back and, and what guides us is by asking the prior question, uh, who is God for? Right? Isn't that a good starting point? Like, who is God for? And, uh, and this, these, there are three stories in Luke 15. We're going to look at the first one, maybe two. In your small groups, I've suggested you also stretch it out and look at the parable, the, the final story, which is the story of uh, the, the father who waits, the story of uh, the son who goes off, the prodigal son, or the story of the older brother who stays behind and gets grumpy. Um, but this story is, tells us just an enormous amount about God, who God is for. And it's very confronting for religious people. So this is the story, right? Uh, Jesus is um, hanging out, and his ministry is becoming public and popular. And he's starting to ruffle the feathers of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law because... Tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus. So uh, he's popular not just with the religious people, the folk who've got their lives together. And, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they get a bad rap in our circles because often in Jesus' stories, they function as sort of the baddies. But to be honest, and I say this with all due respect, most of us if we'd lived in Jesus' day, would have aspired to be Pharisees and teachers of the law. 
Like because they they took God very very seriously. They took the Torah, they took obedience to what God wanted with the utmost seriousness. As I know we mostly do. So it we we can think oh they're bad initially, but hang on no this they're, they're not. There's there's a Pharisee growing up in each of us, and sometimes that's not all bad. But this is the problem, right? It's not just the tax collectors and sinners who are gathering around to hear Jesus, but, but Jesus was doing something much more profound. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now that is unthinkable, right? That's unthinkable because... The entire construct of the Torah, of the law, uh, of their practice and their behavior was to say, we have to avoid any possible contamination by sin, by impurity. So sinners and tax collectors were those who, if we came into contact with them, they would contaminate us, they would make us impure, and that would have catastrophic consequences for our world. And you say, how? Well, uh, in, a, in the oral and imprinted memory of the Pharisees and the people of Jesus' day was the extraordinary experience of exile. So uh, 587 BC, the people of God uh, had been uh, taken off, in the, the, the land had been invaded and the people of God had been taken off into exile. They had lost everything. They had lost the temple. They had lost their homeland. They had lost their identity. They had lost many of their family. And uh, sure, they had come back from exile, but it was not the same. It was not the same at all. And, and the reason behind the exile was Israel's failure to obey the law. So the Pharisees' response was... We've got to avoid this catastrophe. And, and we've got to avoid this catastrophe by, by, being, by trying to do in everything humanly possible to avoid ever again breaking God's law so forever we'll be safe and secure and the catastrophe of, catastrophe of exile will never happen to us again. Okay. That's a good impulse. Um, imagine if... Like a hundred years ago, <laughs> this is, imagine if a hundred years ago Australia had been invaded by the Chinese and, uh, and God had said, the reason you're all being invaded, Australia's being invaded and everyone, half the community's being massacred, the rest of you are being shipped off to Shanghai and the reason is because you broke the speed limit. Okay, so that was a hundred years ago. Now the Chinese got sick of us and they sent us back 50 years ago. And, uh, and, and we all still remembered that the reason we lost our land, we lost our identity, we lost our friends, we lived in exile was because we broke the speed limit. What do you think our attitude to speeding would be? Well, if the speed limit was 60, we'd have automatic speed limiters built into all our cars to make sure we never went more than 50. We'd, we'd put a hedge around, we'd put a, a massive barrier to make sure I didn't get anywhere near there. So that's what the Pharisees were doing. You go, we lost everything because we broke the law. So now what we're going to do, we are going to be absolutely super conscious that we never go anywhere near it. And we don't risk this tragedy again. 
here's where the metaphor of speeding and invasion for ourselves breaks down. <laughs> because the problem with the Pharisees' response and Israel's response, and, and this is the problem we all enter into, our rigid obedience to the rules to maintain our own identity and security and safety actually meant that they lost sight of the purpose of the rules that were given in the first place. Okay, the whole point of Torah, the whole point of the law, the whole point of God choosing Israel to be his people was not to keep them in beautiful isolation in the land, but rather that through these people, sinners and tax collectors and the surrounding nations might come and connect with God. That was the whole point. But out of fear of what they might lose, out of well-intentioned but perhaps poorly executed desires to please God, slowly what happened was the very thing that was designed to help them be a blessing to the nations, to love the outsider, to bring healing and peace and hope to all the world. This thing now became the, the instrument of oppression and exclusion. And Jesus comes as Yahweh himself steps into the world to say, no, no, I'm going to show you what my intention always was, and I'm going to show you how we're meant to live. If we are deeply connected with God, we want to sh I want to show you, Jesus says, uh, exactly who I am for. And who is God for? The sinners. <laughs> Folk who are excluded who are disconnected from God. I mean, Jesus said it this way. He said, the, this, the healthy don't need a doctor, it's the sick. He's come for those who, who know that they need God and want God, and maybe by the standards of the rigid application of Torah that the Pharisees and the teachers of the laws brought about, they had no hope of connecting with God. So God... God is for sinners, and it's, it's a welcome into the family. That's when he says, welcome sinners and eats with them. He's saying, it's not just that he teaches them, as bad as that was. He brings them into his family. It's outrageous. You'd never do that as a rabbi or a teacher of the law or a Pharisee or a high-status person. You'd never include these defiled, ritually unclean people. You wouldn't include them until they'd cleaned up their lives, showed that they were really serious, got their act together, jumped through a bunch of hoops, been and been examined and prodded and shown that really their repentance was genuine and sincere and it wasn't just a flash in the pan, but they really, really, really were serious about God. And then maybe once they jumped through all those hoops, maybe then they could have a provisional entry. And, and God says, no, no, you know what happens, hey? It's not like you've got to jump through all these hoops and then you can belong. He says, just come and you belong to my family. And then you know what will happen is as you hang out around my table, you'll find that you're changed. <laughs> And your behavior will change because you're loved and accepted. 
And this is very tricky for the Pharisees to understand. So he tells them an, a, a, quite an outrageous story. He's got 90, his bloke's got 100 sheep. He's looking after 100 sheep. Uh, and it was probably, there were probably actually a few other shepherds with him. Um, 100 sheep is a lot of sheep, so it was probably a combined herd from a number of families in the village. And he's out there, and it's time to come home. And he looks around, he does a head count, he's lost one. So what does he do? Well, he leaves the 99, presumably in the care of the others, and they take him back to the village. And then this guy goes out after the lost sheep, and he pursues the sheep until he finds it. And it is costly, and it is hard work, and it is risky work, and it is shameful work. Like the fact that the shepherd is going out traipsing after one stupid lost sheep is, is a shameful admission that he's failed. Oh, he's got to, oh, how do we lose that sheep? He's got to go fine. And sheep are dumb and stupid and get themselves into all kinds of difficulty. And he goes and he finds it. And when he finds it, he's really happy. So full of joy, he puts it on his shoulders. Well, why? Well, maybe we, we know that by this stage, the sheep might be absolutely paralyzed with fear. Or maybe it's got injured. Uh, various, there are some beautiful uh, depictions in art um, uh, of, this, of this story. And, 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 and he picks up this sheep and he puts it on his shoulder. Now, how many of you have ever carried a full-grown sheep on your shoulders? Yes, Christian. What was that like? Oh, okay. Oh, right. <laughs> How many of you have carried a full-grown sheep on your shoulders? I haven't. How much does a sheep weigh? On the spit or off the spit? Okay, on, off the spit, on the hoof, it's 30, 40 kilograms? Okay. Maybe, maybe a little scrawny one you see in Israel. Maybe it's 20, 30, but more like 30 or 40. That's a lot, right? So, so here's the bloke. He's up in the hill country. He's, he goes down. He's doing his squats, and then he's coming down the mountain with 30, doing his lunges all the way down with a 30, 40 kilogram smelly, dirty, terrified sheep on his back. And he does it, and he's grumpy, and he's miserable, and he's cursing, and he's saying, you stupid sheep. Why do I have to do this? Is that what he's saying? He's full of joy. That's full of joy, right? And then he gets home, and he calls his friends and his neighbors, and he says, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. Warm up the barbecue. So, and the whole village is excited, and he's like, yes, well, this thing was lost, and it's so precious to me. And I went up the hill, and I carried this stupid sheep back, and it's back, and it's, let's have a party. And then Jesus says, I tell you, in the same way, there's more joy, more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents and over 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. There's Who's God for? What has He done for us? Well, God has come after us at great cost, but full of joy. The, the shepherd who goes after the sheep 
goes on a shameful journey, and that shepherd is Jesus himself. He knows that just across, just down the road, he's going to be walking alone up a hill. And as he walks alone up the hill, he's going to carry on his shoulders not one sheep, but the sin and the weight of the world on the cross as the great shepherd of the sheep hangs and dies. He's carrying on his shoulders you and me. He's carrying on his shoulders everyone who's messed up, everyone who has a deep sense that they're not enough, everyone who's broken, everyone who's lost, Everyone who knows that the world isn't quite the way it should be, and he carries those sheep on his shoulder, and it kills him. But then he defeats death, and he rises again on the third day, and he carries those same sheep home to be with his Father in heaven, and in heaven there is great rejoicing. God is for us, and he's for us with joy, even at great cost to himself. And the joy then is is magnified when we allow ourselves to experience the fullness of all that God is for us. When we allow Jesus to carry us home, when we give up the pretense that we deserve to be home, when we give up the pretense that we can earn it, when we recognize our lostness and we let Jesus carry us home, there is more, there is, there is just heaven throws a party, right? Uh, in fact, as Jesus puts it with this woman, he says, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In 1985, just the other day, I was a, just a, lost, somewhat messed up 15-year-old boy who was sitting in a great big gathering in a theater in Cape Town watching this big combined church's choir sing in this musical. I was there not because of God, but because I was very keen on one of the girls who was singing in the musical. And I sat there as this 15-year-old boy who'd heard a bit about Jesus, who had a lifetime of adverse childhood experiences, and the guy up the front asked us to come forward and, and receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, to come forward and be born again. And it is a, I've told this story before, but after a bit of toing and froing with God, I... I I jumped up out of my seat and with tears streaming down my face and with this overwhelming sense of the love and the presence of God in my life, I knew this is what I had to do. And I go rushing down to the front and there's these guys down the front are going to find out what's going on for you. And he wanted to go through a little outline of the gospel. And I said, I know this. I just, I just want to pray. I just want to be a Christian. And so with tears streaming down my face, this old South African guy laid his hand on my shoulder and we prayed together. And then I opened my eyes. And you know what the first words were that he said to me when I opened my eyes after praying and asking for Jesus to carry me home? He said, all the angels in heaven are rejoicing over you right now because of what you have just done. Did you go, what? 
I mean, not a lot of people rejoiced over me when I was a kid. And, and there is this guy going, all of, all of the angels are throwing a party because Jesus has carried you home. Yes. That's, and that's not just for me. That's for, for everyone. <laughs> you don't have to be a messed up little 15-year-old with a lifetime of adverse experiences behind him. You can be a well-put-together adult who's got everything sorted out. You can be an addict. You can be a Muslim. You can be anything. And God says, I'm just going to, I'm so glad you come home. All of reality is going to throw a party. All of the angels are going to dance and sing and shout. Because God is for us and for the world. So for me, I don't know about for you, for me, um, once you understand and experience that, you and you cannot not be for others. You cannot not want that for everyone. I want that for everyone that I meet more than I want anything else for them. There's nothing better in the world than to be carried home by Jesus into the family home and then have everybody there throwing a massive party and rejoicing because you've come home. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what your baggage, no matter what your brokenness, no matter how inadequate you feel about yourself, you go, I'm home. And my family is throwing a party that I'm here. Eh? Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, I thank you so very, 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 very much that you, uh, you were happy to leave, leave your home in glory and come down into our messed up world to come find people like me, little messed up teenage boys who just needed to be loved, and big messed up adults who also need to be loved, and you've come into this world, and you are for the world, and I pray for us and for anyone in this space now who just needs a strong sense right now that you are for them, help them to cry out to you, to cast their lives on you. I pray for us as a church that you'll never, ever let us forget the wonder of, of this story, the wonder of the gospel, the wonder that you are for us at great cost and that you rejoice in us. And may we in our behavior, not just in what we say, but in how we live and how we spend our money and who we invite into our homes and how we go about our work, may we be women and men who, who live for others in the way that you did and in the way that you have done for us. Amen.